Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Healthy Herb Podcast, a place of information and inspiration for the home herbalist. I'm Bridget Doherty of the Soledago School of Herbalism, coming to you from a bridged island on the Northeast Atlantic coast. In today's show, I'm talking about a variety of seasonal herbal topics. Basically, an unraveling of what has been on my mind relating to herbs this past week. What's growing and how they may be useful and fun to work with and appreciate. Before we get started, I want you to know that I'm not a doctor, nor do I diagnose or treat people. What I share is based on my own experience and what I have learned from my mentors. Ultimately, I want you to be empowered in seeking and achieving your own version of optimum health. I want you to be inspired to connect and relate to the common plants that grow all around you. Now, without further ado, let's have some fun and dig in. So, oh wow, right now it's the middle of May and the green world is exploding where I live. Veriditas, veriditas, veriditas are the magical words of the week and of the month, which basically is a word uh, describing the greening force, the green growing, living, vivacious, intense life energy. That term was originally coined by a famous and old world herbalist, Hildegard von Bingen. And it really is what's on my mind. The plants are growing so quickly, it's almost as if we can almost see them growing in the moment. I leave the house and I look at this one maple tree right by my car, and I come back home and the leaves look like they're twice as big and full. It's just amazing how quickly plants can grow. It astonishes me all the time and how some plants in such a short amount of time can become so large and full of life just from the roots and stored energy and nutrition and water and from the minerals that they can extract and that beautiful energy that they can create from the sun. Plants are truly amazing. 
Right now, the trees are blooming. The spring ephemerals are fading as they are getting shaded by the tree leaves. And the common weeds are bursting forth. The trees that are blooming are fruit trees, decorative trees like lilacs, deciduous trees like the maples and oaks, and the evergreen trees, which you would barely even know that they are flowering, but for the massive amounts of pollen that they are releasing into the air. I will be working in the gardens and I'll check my phone for the time and in the second it takes me to take the phone out of my pocket it is covered with a uh, pollen that I guess from static I don't know what but it just all of a sudden it just is you know you have to swipe the pollen off of it just to look at the phone so maybe um, you are feeling, if you are also exposed to all of this evergreen pollen in the air, um, maybe you're feeling a little stuffy. I know I am actually feeling slightly stuffy in my nose. Um, or maybe you are feeling allergic and have more intense allergies to evergreen pollen. So things that I like to think about, herbs that I like to think about, uh, if I'm feeling a little allergic or for people who are feeling extremely sensitive and allergic to these airborne pollens that are massively in the air right now are three herbs. The first herb is goldenrod and goldenrod is a wonderful astringent and is quite drying to mucous membranes. So if you have a lot of excess mucus in your sinuses or you're very congested in your nose, then a little bit of goldenrod uh, tincture could be very helpful. And this is usually from the flowering tops of the goldenrod. So the goldenrod blooms in August and September and even maybe a little bit into October here where I live. So you kind of have to plan ahead if you're going to make your own goldenrod tincture to prepare yourself for allergy seasons, you know, throughout the summer. So we start with like evergreen and tree pollen, and then we move into the grass pollens in the middle of the summer. And then more in late summer, we have the cronewort, the artemisia, pollen as well as the ambrosia or ragweed pollen, which are all airborne pollens. And the plants tend to be the flowers of these plants, like the grass flowers and the ragweed flowers and the evergreen flowers are very nondescript, almost invisible because they only depend on the wind. They don't have to attract insects. They don't have to be bright and showy to attract insects to pollinate from flower to flower. They rely on the wind. So all they need to do is have ways of presenting their pollen so that when the wind can easily take it. It takes a lot, the plants a lot of energy to produce these beautiful bright flowers to draw in the pollinating insects. And they're 
pollen tends to be relatively sticky and heavy so that it can stick to the insect's legs. And then as the insects go from, you know, from plant to plant, then the pollen can kind of fall back onto the other plants from the insect bodies. So a lot of people think of goldenrod as being a plant that releases pollen into the air and causes seasonal allergies because it blooms at the exact same time that the ambrosia and the cronewort or the artemisia vulgaris bloom. And the goldenrod is like bright and showy. And so that's what we see. And in our, when we're feeling allergic to what we don't see are those green nondescript flowers that are really causing the seasonal allergies. The goldenrod pollen is not airborne, so you are not allergic to it. And the interesting thing, if you look at these airborne pollens, at least I think I've seen pictures of the ambrosia, the ragweed pollen, they look like little torture devices. You know, they're like balls with hooks and barbs and spikes on them. And that allows the pollen to catch, you know, it's blowing in the wind, but now it's blowing in the wind and now it has to latch on to the next plant so that it can pollinate the next plant that is of its same variety. So you can, when you look at it, you can understand why these pollens could be irritating to our mucous membranes and why the body will, would have an immune response against them. Like, ah, get this out of here. So that's something to consider is these airborne pollens. So goldenrod, I, I, my favorite way is to, I dry the goldenrod flowers. You can buy dried goldenrod if you want the flowers and the the leaves from the top section of the plant. And then I just make a strong tea with the goldenrod flowers. I'll put, you know, a handful um, in a quart jar and pour boiling water to fill the jar and just let it steep for 20 to 30 minutes and then um, strain it out. And then I'll just sip on that throughout the day. And I find it to be very drying almost too drying if you have too much of it. So um, just be aware of that as well. You want to find that happy place with the goldenrod tea. It also works really well um, if you have congested from a head cold, actually, and helping to clear out um, those mucous membranes. But you do, again, you don't want to go beyond the point where you're drying the mucous membranes too much because then your mucous membranes will be like, oh, no, I'm dry. I have to create more mucus and then it can be counterproductive. So sometimes people will like to combine a demulcent herb that can also soothe the mucous membranes with the goldenrod if you find it to be too drying. So something um, like a violet leaf or marshmallow leaf, something like that, that can be soothing plantain leaf. The other herbs that I think of to help with people who have seasonal allergies, one is stinging nettle. And that is something that I find is best to, if you tend to have allergies, you want to incorporate 
a stinging nettle nourishing herbal infusion into your daily it doesn't have to be daily but at least weekly routine like for a year and that can and then that can potentially you know eliminate seasonal allergies for you but it's not something like oh I, like how the goldenrod is more immediate effective the nettle is going to be supporting the system more on a foundational level and supporting the health of our immune response, at least in the nourishing herbal infusion form. And then the third herb that I think of for uh, people who have seasonal allergies is astragalus root. And again, this is just to help support um, immune response. And, you know, if we have an overactive immune system that is causing these oversensitivities to common things in our environments, like pollen, something that's more adaptogenic, like an astragalus root that has an affinity for our immune health, can help to moderate our immune response. And astragalus root can be uh, taken in a tincture form daily. Um, it also can be made into a nourishing infusion similar to the nettle. And I'll talk about how to make those in one second. But the astragalus root, again, similar to the nettle, it's very mild and relatively slow acting. So this is something that you know, if you know that every spring when the trees are blooming, you have an allergic reaction and you're uncomfortable, then a couple months beforehand, you may want to consider it's time to start drinking astragalus root nourishing infusion, and that could help sway your allergic response. So a nourishing herbal infusion, again, I probably talk about this in most podcasts that I offer. Um, you weigh out one ounce of the herb and you put it in a quart jar, fill the jar to the top with boiled water, boiling water, put a lid on it and let it steep for four to eight hours, strain it out, squeeze out the plant material so you get all the goodness and the really concentrated infusion that is still in saturated in the plant material. And then um, drink it, drink a quart a day of your nourishing infusion. And it doesn't have to be nettle, a quart of nettle every day, that might be too much. But uh, I want to address recently, I heard someone talk about these nourishing infusions and being like oh my gosh it's just so much plant material like it's just such a waste why why even use that much plant material it's it's a it's a waste and it's selfish and it's just using too much at one time and my response to that is I don't think that it is a waste I think that these are herbs when we use them as nourishing infusions when we make the nourishing infusions the herbs that we're using to do that are food-like herbs or adaptogens they're very mild herbs so it would be like saying oh my gosh you ate like a whole serving of cooked carrots like what a waste that's like 
you know, because you know when you cook down or like a bunch of kale, if you cook down a whole bunch of kale, you might get two or three servings out of it. Oh my gosh, that person cooked a whole bunch of kale. What a waste. That's so much plant material. But really, when we're going for the nutrition and the minerals and the vitamins, which is what we're going for in the nourishing herbal infusions, when we're going for that from our food, from our food plants, we benefit from consuming large amounts. It really is herb specific. So when we would be doing this with, say, calendula or chamomile or mint, then an ounce of mint in a quart is a waste of plant material because that is a super strong herb. It has a lot of medicinal constituents in it, a lot of volatile oils, and we don't need to consume that much of the mint. And it actually could potentially over the long run be harmful to be consuming that much mint. But um, for these food-like nourishing herbs where we're really going for the nutrition, we need it in large amounts. And to say that it's wasteful is really not honoring the fact that it's it's a food source and that we deserve to eat large amounts of nourishing food to get what we need from it. So I had another person that was really kind of turned off by the amount of herb that it takes to, you know, kind of to purchase or to go through the effort of harvesting and then to make these nourishing infusions. And, you know, their take on it was less is more when it comes to herbalism. And I totally get that for the really medicinal plants or for energetic or spiritual work with the plants. But when we are working with nourishing plants for nutrition, then the large amount of plant material is important. Otherwise, it's starvation. (laughs) And we don't want to starve ourselves because that does not bring health at all. These are things I think about while I am gardening all day long. What else am I thinking about? Let's get into it. The lilacs are blooming. Another tree that's blooming. The lilacs, oh, what a lovely, lovely scent. If only we could just dry the lilacs and the scent would stay. I remember the first time I was, you know, I was in my teens and I, it was just like I had to do it. I had to harvest these lilacs and hang them to dry. I had no idea what I was doing. I thought I'd be making potpourris and I just remember being so bummed when the flowers turned brown and the scent disappeared and that just drying the lilacs doesn't do much. But you can um, eat lilacs, you know, in small amounts. They actually are relatively bitter. So um, a common thing that 
people do is make a digestive bitter with the lilac flowers. So you can harvest some lilac flowers. It doesn't take much. You can either chop them up or you can just kind of break them up from their clump of a flower head so you can get more in a jar and lightly fill the jar and then cover the the blooms, the flowers with 100 proof vodka and let it sit for six weeks. And if you use the purple lilac flowers, you'll get a beautiful purple tincture, especially if you keep it out of the sunlight. And that could make, you can add other herbs to it if you want to make a bitters blend or fun, fancy drinks with it. You could also make lilac syrup, which is basically making a really strong lilac tea, which will be bitter, and then adding sugar to it in equal ratio of the tea to the sugar, whatever you're using, honey or white sugar or or raw sugar, whatever. Or you could just make a really light floral water. So you could just take your cup of water, stick a lilac bloom in there, kind of make like a sun tea with it. And then there's the famous lilac wine, like the lovely song that I know of as Jeff Buckley singing it. Lilac wine. Um, So you can listen to the lilac wine song and make some lilac flower wine. Surely there's recipes out there that you could find or um, just drink your lilac flower water while sitting under a lilac shrub and listening to Jeff Buckley to really get you in the mood. The apple trees are also blooming and like crazy this year. Wow, there are so many blooms on the apple trees. And when I start seeing all of the wild and cultivated apple trees blooming, I think, okay, it's also time to start looking for those hawthorn flowers because they are closely related and they tend to bloom right around the same time. Sometimes the the hawthorn, I feel like, might bloom a little bit after the apple trees. It kind of depends on the variety of hawthorn. It's important to realize, unfortunately, that the brown tail moth caterpillars If they are a concern in your area, like they are a concern in my area, that they tend to like apple trees and also hawthorn shrubs and trees. And they can leave their irritating hairs on plant material, even from their previous year's molting. So the unfortunately, the hawthorn patch that I would always harvest my hawthorn flowers and leaves from has been infested with brown tail moth caterpillars for the past couple years. And so I have actually been avoiding harvesting from that patch. And that's really the only patch that I harvest from. So I haven't really been harvesting my hawthorn leaves and flowers. But if you have a hawthorn patch that is not infested with brown tail moths, then you can harvest some leaves and flowers and dry them. They dry really easily either in like a brown paper bag or in an open weave basket in the shade in a and you can kind of like shake shake the brown paper bag every few days if you dry them in that. Um, And then you can use those to make yes nourishing herbal infusions. 
um, which I have found to be very, I am loving the hawthorne leaf and flower nourishing infusion, especially for my knee injury repair, because I have recently discovered that it is beneficial for improving collagen and um, joint health and function, um, as well as its classic or helping to support people with heart issues. So you can also make a, with the fresh flowers and leaves, you can infuse them in vinegar, or you can make a tincture with them as well, just by, you know, chopping them up and putting them in a jar and covering them with either vinegar or 100 proof vodka and letting it sit four to six weeks, straining it out, and it's good to go. The other thing that I've been thinking about as I have been playing around in my gardens and in the gardens of those that I tend are the bugs are out. The bugs are coming, although it has been a pretty dry spring, so there are less bugs than maybe in other wet years. But the ticks are out, and so tick checks are really important. The mosquitoes haven't quite come yet, but the black flies have started a little bit. And the herbs that I think about when I think about insect seasons are yarrow, catnip, and plantain. And again, these are remedies that you can make, you know, ahead of time. So it's always good to know what remedies you want to have on hand. And then when the season comes, make those remedies and then you can have them for when you need them. So the yarrow, um, I like to make a yarrow tincture when the yarrow is blooming and that's with the white wild yarrow. And so that's a little bit later in the season, but I always like to have a nice stash of yarrow tincture around and that makes an excellent uh, insect repellent that you can spray on that is essential oil free and DDT free, which are both things that I would rather avoid spraying on myself. But the yarrow tincture, I mean, it has the volatile oils of the yarrow plant, but not concentrated and refined to an essential oil. And and the same with catnip can be done. So flowering catnip, which again happens a little bit later in the season, can be chopped up and made into a tincture. And then that tincture, either the tincture of the yarrow or the tincture of the catnip can be put in a little spray bottle once it's ready and strained. And you can spray it on as an insect repellent. And it might not stay as long as these essential oil-based or DDT-based bug sprays. You might have to reapply every hour or two, but they do work really well. And always spray, of course, at your ankles to prevent or to help to repel ticks from crawling up your legs. If I do get stung or bit by mosquitoes or bees or even a tick bite, um, I will immediately put some a plantain leaf. This is the Plantago genus of plants. And the Plantago major or the Plantago lanceolata are the ones that grow around me. 
the best thing really to do as soon as you get a bug bite or an insect sting is to make a spit poultice. So chew that leaf up and stick it right on the bite and it has a drying effect. So it can actually draw out any poisons or maybe even um, just kind of tighten tighten the wound. I've heard of it even being able to draw out a stinger. Um, and then it, the inflammation totally goes down and the pain subsides immediately. So I do love the plantain. And then if I have been bitten by a tick, um, after I pull it off, the first thing I do is I put some yarrow tincture on that tick bite and then a plantain poultice. And then I just watch and watch and watch. I continually will put yarrow tincture. Sometimes I'll soak a cotton swab with yarrow tincture and then put it on the tick bite and then cover that with a Band-Aid or something to hold it there. And then I just will always try to have some sort of yarrow tincture to attempt to prevent any sort of bacterial infection, whether it's Lyme or um, a different, any of the other numerous bacteria infections that could come from a tick bite. And then I just keep an eye on it. And if it does progress and start looking like it's more and more irritated, if the rash, if it starts to get a rash around it, then I, I will go and get an antibiotic because Lyme is nothing that I want to play around with. And if you get to it quickly enough, then the antibiotics seem to be quite effective. And that's one place where I am grateful that we have the antibiotics. But for immediate, you know, as soon as you get the bite, think yarrow or uh, plantain on tick bites. So lots are going on in the garden and in the fields in the middle of May. And it's almost, it's almost overwhelming <laughs> to be surrounded by so much abundance of the green world. I have so much gratitude and especially coming out of a wintry wintry season to just be surrounded by so much green life it makes me very happy another fun thing to do this time of year is just to get out and explore your yard or the immediate area surrounding where you live get a field guide either to wild foods or medicinal plants. I like the Peterson field guides for those. And if there's a plant that you are unfamiliar with, see if you can find it in the field guide. And if you are familiar with the plant, you know the name of it, but you are not sure if it's edible or medicinal, look it up. See what abundance of green allies you have growing all around you. I have been preparing my Patreon class for this month um, in the midst of it all, which is about wild salads. And the other day uh, we went around and took some videos of all of the wild edible plants in my backyard. Um, 
that could easily just be, um, you know, gathered and put on top of the salad. And uh, we found well over 10. We found violet, dandelion, oxeye daisy, yellow dock, wood sorrel, sheep sorrel, lambs, quarters, glaucoma heteraceae, otherwise known as creeping charlie or gill over the ground, mugwort, cronewort, that's the same plant of two different names, plantain, uh, some gallium species, whether it's uh, bedstraw or I don't think I'd want to put cleavers in a salad necessarily, a little scratchy, which is another gallium plant. But um, sweet woodruff is the one that's in my garden. And there is sow thistle. You just kind of cut off the sharp tips, and it's actually a very yummy green. Yarrow flowers, or not yarrow, yarrow flowers, yarrow leaves. Wild carrot leaves, just make sure you definitely are able to identify wild carrot before you eat it because it does have poisonous lookalikes. Sachan, um, otherwise known as green coneflower. Uh, hosta, tulip flowers, forsythia flowers, lilac flowers, violet flowers, dandelion flowers. All of those plants just in literally my backyard and could each, you know, you could grab a couple leaves of each or a few leaves of each and just put it on your flat on your salad for the day for that evening. Why would we want to do this? And I'll get into a lot more in the Patreon class this month, which is going to be coming out in the next week or so. But one of the best things that these plants offer us are wild bacteria, wild soil-borne bacteria, which are so important for the health of our gut flora. And it tends to be the part of our gut flora that we, as Americans, uh, tend to be lacking the most of. And as we learn more and more about the importance of our own microbiome, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And we really realize how important it is that we have a healthy microbiome and a diverse microbiome, the ecosystem that is within ourselves. I would not recommend eating dirt itself. That's the benefit of these wild leaves is you can just take a few and put them on your salad without washing them. And they will have very small amounts of the bacteria, but again, these we don't need a lot. They're, these are very, um, you know, micro creatures. So it's not like you have to eat a whole spoonful of dirt. And in fact, I was talking to someone about this whole concept of you know it, getting more soil bacteria into our gut, and she's like, "Oh yeah, well, you know, my boyfriend took a spoonful of dirt, put it in a cup, and drank the whole thing." down and got really sick from it. And I was like, well, you know, that's, that's understandable. You know, that's kind of taking it to the extreme. So we don't need to do that. Although I have heard some herbalists say, I'll take a spoonful of good organic dirt or compost and put it in a glass with water and then just drink the water, you know, let it settle and then just drink the water from it settling. But 
quite honestly, that doesn't really appeal to me either. And I have not done that. And I'm not suggesting that anyone do that. But I have eaten plenty of wild leaves out of the yard. And I feel like it's very beneficial. And my hands are often in the dirt. And um, and I feel like that I don't necessarily wash my hands thoroughly all the time so that there's soil-borne bacteria on my skin. And that also eventually gets into my into my diet in small amounts as well. So a little bit of dirt goes a long way for health and well-being. And on that note, I hope that you are interested in learning more about foraging backyard medicinal plants and herbal remedies and growing herbs in your garden. And if you are, come find me on the Patreon website under the Solidago Herb School, or you can check out my website, find me on Instagram, Facebook, all via Solidago Herb School. And I want to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm Bridget Doherty. Until next week, be well, let intuition guide you, and have fun with herbs. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube